Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Situation Report. Glad to have you joining me today. This is the show where we do our very best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stonlicker. Happy to be with you. Today we are going to discuss a topic that uh, I have very strong opinions about, but one that I'm thankful has really risen to the top of public discourse. When I think about the roles that we have in our society, and particularly the roles of parents in society, uh, we can look at all of the things we would say are important. As a parent, as a, as a husband and a father in the context of a family, I have some roles, and I could break those down from most important to least important. Somewhere on the list is taking care of the house and taking care of the car and, and doing all the things we have to do there, uh, moving my kids around from one activity to another. Uh, there is the providing of food and shelter. All of these are roles that I need to fulfill, and again, some are more important than others. But when I think about the important roles that I have as a father and the important roles that we have as parents, certainly at the top of that list or near the top of the list would have to be educating our kids. We put a, a value, a high price, a high value on educating our children. And particularly in the United States, we talk a lot about education. In fact, we spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars as parents, millions of dollars, billions of dollars as a nation to educate our children. And yet, in so many ways, our kids go through the system of education that we've set up here in the United States and get to the other side, perhaps not as educated as we would like for them to be. In fact, often what our kids experience over the course of the life of education from preschool or kindergarten all the way through high school and into college and university and perhaps even beyond, uh, what they really experience more than being educated in those things they need to know and understand, what they experience is an institutionalization. They become institutionalized. Uh, they learn how to think and act as is popular in culture. They become very politically correct. They know what they're supposed to say and what they're not supposed to say and how they're supposed to act and what they're supposed to stay away from, uh, how they're supposed to think. All of those can happen in the context of our education system, and most of us are aware of that. On this show, uh, in fact, uh, I've spent a lot of time and, and had guests on that have, have, have talked about the importance of even home education, homeschooling your children. Uh, I was raised in a home where I, for some time, went to a Christian school, a private Christian school. Uh, I went to a public school for a little while. I was homeschooled for a lot of my time. 
And when I was homeschooled, when my parents decided it was time to take us out of kind of institutional education and homeschool us, there were a lot of reasons for that. Uh, some of those reasons were specific to the school that I had been going to, the public school I had been going to. Some of the reasons were um, philosophical, I guess, how my parents looked at educating us, uh, myself and my sisters. Um, there was a lot of lot that went into that decision-making process. Uh, but when I was going through that process, homeschooling was definitely not popular. It was looked down on you were considered strange or outside of the norm if you were being homeschooled, particularly here in the state of California. Um, thankfully, a lot of that has changed. Now, there are people who still look at you as uh, strange or outside of the norm if you're homeschooled. Uh, but but homeschooling, particularly homeschooling, if it's connected to a charter school and a lot of these other options that we have today, uh, has become very popular. Right? Certainly, the pandemic has helped with that. Um, a lot of parents realizing that when push comes to shove and schools shut down, they're going to have to educate their children anyhow. They better figure it out. Technology has helped with that. We have so many more options today than we did uh, even a short time ago, but certainly uh, 20 or 30 years ago through online schooling and, and just so many things, so many areas that uh, technology has helped with. Homeschooling has become much more accessible for more people and uh, very thankful for that. Parents working from home, that is something that at, at one time really didn't exist, not in any real way, unless you um, had a home business or something else. But but most people had to go to an office, so they weren't able to help their kids throughout the day. So lots of change that has allowed uh, a lot of parents to home educate their kids, which is, uh, to me, a great um, a great development, certainly. But there is an area where strides are being taken, strides are being made, uh, policy is being changed, states, in many cases, uh, if not states, then local governments, local school districts, and so forth, are getting on board. And uh, it's a good development, and we'll see how it all shakes out. But it is this idea of school choice. So school choice, when I was going through school was my parents could decide to either pay to send me to a Christian school, uh, allow me to go to a public school, or pay to have me homeschooled. They would do the schooling, but they had to pay for everything that went along with that. School Choice says, uh, as a taxpayer, you are already paying for school. Uh, public schools are funded through the taxes of those residents who live in that district, that area. And since you are already paying for an education, you should have the choice of taking the money that is being taken from you through your taxes for education. You should have the choice of where that money is applied. School choice. Now, it's not quite that simple. It can be more complicated than that. But generally speaking, that's what we're discussing when we talk about school choice. And I am all for it. Uh, I'll tell you, as a, as a Christian, I believe that uh, of the three institutions given to us by God, we have the family, uh, local government, and church. Uh, we have given up so much of what happens in the family to the government. <laughs> and because of that, the church is also impacted. This idea that we can send our kids to an institutional public system of education and expect for them to come out with a strong biblical worldview, although I know it happens, I'm aware of that, uh, but by and large, that's not the case. 
And as a parent, we need to understand where we are sending our kids and understand the impact of the education that they're getting on their long-term health and their long-term view of the world. And um, an understanding of school choice goes a long way to help deal with that. I read an article, and it, it's a great article found in the Foundation for Economic Education uh, their website, the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, has an article up right now. It just went up um, uh, recently, uh, let's see, January, I guess about a year old, so not quite as recent as many. But they talk about uh, this idea of school choice as it relates to teachers. <clears throat> and I love it. They are, uh, the author of the article is Daniel Buck. You can go check that out. And uh, this is a different perspective than most give. Now, the argument typically is, how does this benefit families? How does this benefit homes? Um, sometimes the counter argument is that if parents take their kids out of low-performing schools, that it will hurt the school, and then it will hurt the kids that are left there because they don't have the ability to move. Um, so many arguments around this idea of school choice. But this article highlights that even teachers <laughs> in schools will be helped if school choice uh, becomes policy in various um, uh, various uh, districts for uh, schooling. I want to read this to you because I think it's fascinating and I think it's very helpful to include this in the discussion. When school boards and uh, local municipalities and states are making decisions about education, this needs to be included. Again, uh, the title is School Choice Also Gives Teachers Like Me More Choice, written by Daniel Buck. Let me read this. Have you ever picked up a towel set because it felt really soft in the store, but then when you got to use it, it's not very absorbent? It's basically a towel that's leaving you out to dry. That's why MyPillow has developed the MyPillow towels, towels that work. I know, it's mind-blowing, towels that actually dry you. Their six-piece towel set includes two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. They come in a variety of colors, and right now you can receive a six-piece set for only $39.98 with promo code SITREP. Go to MyPillow.com right now and click on the radio listener special. MyPillow products all come with a 10-year warranty and their 60-day money-back guarantee. To receive this amazing offer on the six-piece set of MyPillow towels, just go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, and enter promo code SITREP or call 800-870-0283. That's MyPillow.com, promo code SITREP. During a moment of small group discussion in a professional development session, a teacher near me gave his opinion. Here's the opinion. Look, I've learned a few things in my time here, and that's to only do these sorts of things on the days the administration comes in to watch. <laughs> that's a great opinion. Hey, we're only going to do this as teachers when the administration is here. Um, in most school buildings, there smolders an animosity of which most people aren't aware between teachers and administrators. Again, this is a great look into what happens in uh, in the education system. In most school buildings, he says, I love how he says this, there smolders an animosity of which most people aren't aware between teachers and administrators. It shows up in staff meetings. It's heard in teachers' lounge gossip. Uh, Quote, if only they trusted us and gave us the freedom to do our jobs as we see fit, end quote, goes the refrain of frustrated teachers. This tension, while a problem in itself, is indicative of a larger issue. There is a handful of different ways to teach 
that are based on different educational theories. Public schools, not committed to any particular theory, mandate a poor mixture of them all onto their teachers. Private schools, a different option, where the curriculum may be more aligned to individual beliefs, contain only 10% of school enrollment, leaving most teachers to teach a hodgepodge curriculum with which they don't agree. It's a matter, then, of hampered choice. I want to pause there. We're going to jump into, uh, he goes deeper into the issue or the problem as he outlines it. But this is exactly right. And as we're looking, even we're, we're, there are so many discussions going on across our country about education right now. Uh, things like critical race theory and so many of these, these gender uh, studies curriculums and conversations, even to young children, about uh, gender and gender identity and those kind of things. We're, we're talking about all of this stuff that we disagree with in the realm of education, whether it's for young people or older students. So many things are happening. So many conversations are taking place. So much is being taught that we as the public disagree with, but we have to look at the teachers that are there being required to teach some of uh, this curriculum. Many of the teachers are caught even in a system where there is a philosophical bent um, or a, a bent being driven by culture that is demanding they teach certain, uh, certain subjects and teach in a certain way that may be philosophically not aligned to where that teacher is. Uh, the teacher decided to teach because they care about math, they care about education, uh, they care about English, they care about these subjects and now the administration, for one reason or another, is requiring them to teach things that they disagree with. Um, we tend to, outside of the system, look into the system and conclude that everyone there believes the same thing, that they all agree with everything that is being taught, and that's just not the case. That is uh, what um, the author here, Daniel Buck, is pointing out. He, he goes on and identifies what he calls the problem. A quick overview of the two broad educational theories to which teachers ascribe is needed to understand this problem. So two theories. The first has a classical view of education and sees schools as a way to make a well-rounded, generally knowledgeable individual. The focus is on content. So the first one, the classical view of education, sees schools as a way to make a well-rounded, generally knowledgeable individual. The focus is on content. And I think most of us who send our kids to school would hope that this is the perspective. The second, he says, could be called skills-focused educators who see schools as a way to train the next generation of civically-minded workers. Within each broad theory are a myriad of subdivisions and practices. Asking, what and how should we read in class, exemplifies the diversity in teaching methods. Regimented charter schools would model a, uh, a systematic method for analyzing a text, practice with their class, and then ask the student to do uh, an assessment. The progressive urban educators would treat a text as a cultural artifact to compare and contrast the systems of oppression in various eras. A private Christian school would read a work and give their students into understanding what the author believed. Montessori schools would ask students to pick their books and subsequently discuss what it made them think about. This short list doesn't even touch on vocational, STEM, or arts-based schools. 
So again, we'll pause. He says, the problem is this. There are so many philosophies around education. And from one school to the, to another, one uh, context to another, the focus will be different. And the teachers within those contexts need to understand the focus and adjust. He continues. This is great. In this market of choices, no one method is inherently superior to the other. Each has their own strengths and weaknesses. Each does, however require a unique set of skills to create a unique set of students. Speaking for myself, he goes on, I was educated in the progressive urban school method and taught myself into a regimented charter school one. During my first year of teaching, an administrator required that I implement a classroom structure I had never learned. Within a few weeks, my class was chaos as I had no idea how to do what they asked and I, like the teacher in my anecdote, learned to ignore administrative mandates. This problem is professionally stifling. Many teachers required to teach Shakespeare stumble through a month of an author for whom they have neither respect nor understanding. Others have a unit that implements Montessori-like choice reading without the knowledge of how to push the depth of a student's thought when every kid in the class has a different book. Robert Pendicio, a senior fellow at the Fordham Institute, says, I'd rather my child's teacher were an ardent disciple of a curriculum or pedagogy I don't like rather than make a forced march through one I prefer, but which has been imposed on the teacher unwillingly. So he sets the stage here. He describes the problem. I think we can understand this. Uh, the problem is there are many philosophies around education, uh, not one. There are many ideas about what education should be, not one. Now, we could go back 60 years, 70 years further, and I think the further back we go, the more consistent uh, the ideology around education. There were different ideas but there was a central ideology. Uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. We've all heard, <laughs> heard that quoted. Uh, what needs to happen in school? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, we need to teach kids how to read. We need to teach kids how to write. And we need to teach them math. A more classical view would include things like literature and perhaps even foreign language, maybe even a language like Latin. Something to help the student not only know the facts of reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also how to think more broadly. Uh, this has long been the single ideology or the single focus of education. But we know today we're not in the same place, that there is not one philosophy of education, uh, that from one school to another, from one type of school to another, from one philosophical bent to another, the idea about what should be taught and how it should be taught can be very, very different. That's what the author is explaining here. Now, he's going to get into what he calls the benefits of choice. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But what we see then is that a teacher with a philosophy comes into a school environment or a school context that may, as a school, we'll talk about the administration, they are driving an idea, an ideology, a perspective on education that is contrary to that teacher's. Now, the teacher, because they are a good teacher, because they care about the students, because 
they want a job or they need to get started in their job and this is where they're going to start, whatever their reason, they come into a context with which they don't necessarily agree but will go along. Now, who struggles here? Well, the teacher certainly struggles. The teacher is doing something they don't necessarily love, teaching something they uh, at best struggle to understand and at worst don't agree with. But who really struggles then is the student. Because there is no consistency of thought, there is no consistency of application to their education. The administration is telling a teacher to do one thing, some teachers do, others do not. There is vast inconsistency. So the teacher struggles, the administration struggles to get done what they want done, but more importantly, the student struggles. Not a consistent thought, not consistent education. Now, again, I know as a conservative, we look at what's happening in public education and we believe that there is consistent thought. There is a worldview that is rife with untruth, historical inaccuracy, uh, anti-conservative bias, whatever we would frame that to be. We believe that this is universally how public education works. I know that the front-facing picture we have of public education would be that anti-conservative values, uh, pro things like critical race theory and, and gender theory and ideology and, and so many of these things that we struggle with, uh, less about actual education and reading, writing, and arithmetic and classical thought, and more about how to function in culture. That is the front-facing picture of most public education systems, but that doesn't mean that every person in that system agrees with that. And so there is so much chaos, as the author here expounds. This is a great point, and I'm glad someone was willing to write about this in particular. He has a solution to all of that. And his solution comes down to choice. Now, we talk often about choice. Some people are pro-choice in some scenarios and not in others. Uh, how interesting that is to me. But when it comes to our children, I believe that parents are the ones who should have choice, even though there are many in the public education system that would say, and even have recently, that parents should have no choice because they're not professionals. Uh, this article and many others like it would illustrate uh, that there isn't a professional. There are different people with different ideas. Regardless, the author goes on and says, the benefits of choice. School choice will create a system without this inherent tension between teacher freedom and bureaucratic mandates. Check that out. School choice will create a system without the inherent tension between teacher freedom, that's the teacher uh, teaching as they believe is right, we won't say as they see fit, although that would work, as they see right, uh, philosophically aligned to who they are as the teacher, where they've come from, where they've been educated, what they believe is right, the method as well as the content, uh, that is teacher freedom, having the ability to teach that. There's a tension between that and bureaucratic mandates. I need to pause here. Think about the bureaucratic mandates. Where is the, the ideologies, the systems that are being taught that we disagree with? Where are those coming from? They're not coming from society at large. They're not coming from the culture around us necessarily. 
that are being driven by bureaucrats. Some within the system, some outside of the system, putting pressure onto the system. But that bureaucratic decision-making process is pushing so often against what teachers believe and creating a tension. How do we deal with that? Well, the author of this article would say, through choice. This system ties funding to students and deregulates the system, allowing for a diversification of schools to contend for skilled teachers. What a great point. He makes the same point that most people make, but he makes it with a different emphasis. This system ties funding to students and deregulates the system. There's a comma after that statement, but that is the statement that most people make about school choice. Why is school choice beneficial? Because it ties funding to the student and then deregulates the system. Uh, This gives the system the ability to experience competition. And where there is competition, typically scores uh, for children will increase. The level of education will increase. The product gets better. Why? Because now there's competition. Currently, without school choice, parents can decide to pay to send their kids somewhere else. But the money allocated through taxation to schools, continues to go to that school. And because of that, there is no competition. The public school in your community is not competing with the Christian school in your community. The public school in your community is not competing with a charter school or a Montessori school in your community. They're not competing. They don't care. (laughs) Because the majority of the finances that they are receiving to educate whatever kids show up will continue to be funneled their direction. So, bureaucrats can make decisions about what is taught without regard for who shows up. That goes away when choice is instituted. After the comma, he makes the statement, this allows for a diversification of schools to contend for skilled teachers. Here's the point he makes. He'll continue to make it. When the dollars for education, the dollars that have been allocated for education, can now follow the student, then schools other than the public school, that is a Christian school, um, some other religious school, a Montessori school, a charter school, other schools in the community, the money follows the student. So where the student goes, the school gets that money and is able now to hire teachers that are philosophically aligned to the school and the students who have chosen to attend that school, or rather the parents who have chosen to send their children to that school. So now you have a school with a philosophy and children with an agreeing philosophy of education and teachers coming alongside who can teach according to their own educational philosophy. Uh, teaching what they believe is important and teaching it in the way that they believe is important. Fascinating. The argument would be then that each one of the schools gets better because those teaching in those schools are now aligned with the school itself. He goes on, many teachers worry that a system like this would allow for anti-scientific, overtly racist, or simply a simple bad teaching to spread. 
two things can work against this concern. First, any mixture of state or local content standards, intermittent standardized tests, or school inspections can ensure a minimum of quality without the need for the federal government to run schools. More importantly, the system allows for market pressure to keep schools accountable. If a school is ineffective, parents can choose to send their kids elsewhere, thereby draining funds away. This school, with its poor practice, will then either have to change or close. That is a powerful uh, paragraph, and it's one that is so often misunderstood when it comes to the idea of choice or what we might call free market. So the counter-argument here is, well, if we allow students to take their money and go to whatever school they want to go to, then the level of education will actually decrease. Things that are not true will be taught, etc., etc., etc. So what we need, the conclusion would be, is the government to regulate each institution to make sure that things are done well. But the sometimes counterintuitive truth is that if there is competition and a school fails to educate children in a way that allows those kids to go on to high school and into college and out into the workforce, if the school fails, then the school will close. That's the free market. So parents will send their kids where their kids can get a good education, not where their kids will get a bad education. So regulation becomes unnecessary because it's built in. Uh, it is not dissimilar to people choosing a restaurant based on where they can get the best food for the best price, good quality, something they enjoy. A restaurant right next door that doesn't provide those things will close because no one is going to, to go there. That's how this system works. It doesn't need to be overly regulated because it's self-regulated. He goes on, sadly, 79% of teachers, both Republican and Democrat, oppose school vouchers. <laughs> 79%. Along with their concerns about accountability, many believe they will drain money from their paychecks to private schools. But studies have shown reality to be the exact opposite. Instead, it is a system that will provide them with the freedom they long for. Ashley Berner of John Hopkins University wrote in a review of the research on school choice, that many educators will find this pluralistic system professionally attractive. Funding an increasingly diverse spectrum of schools will likely generate innovative working environments and strong school cultures that mirror teachers' individual commitments and pedagogical styles. A disciple of classical education could leave the mediocre curriculum of the public school and teach a strict grammar through philosophy at a private school. The progressive educator can leave Shakespeare behind and teach reading through culturally relevant materials. The Montessori people can say goodbye to curriculum altogether and let the kids guide the class as they go along. While applying for jobs during graduate school, I had the pleasure of interviewing at a choice-funded Christian charter school in a poor neighborhood of Milwaukee. Every individual teacher in that school had a shared vi vision and pedagogy and created an energetic atmosphere which I have yet to feel again. Seeing the mandated curriculum at this school, a professor with whom I discussed this opportunity drew back in horror. How can they teach like this? She gasped. She disagreed with almost every curricular choice this school has made while I praised them for it all. 
In a system with choice, she could pick a school that better fit her belief, leaving me happy at a school that fits mine. And uh, that is a great article by Daniel Buck on the uh, Freedom uh, Freedom for Economic Foundation website. Uh, go and check that out. Great article. School choice also gives teachers like me more choice. Um, what I appreciate about about this article specifically is that it focuses in a different area than we typically focus. When I talk about school choice, so often I talk about the kids and parents, and I think that is, again, in a list of priorities, that is where we need to focus. Kids and parents having the ability to educate their kids as they see fit. Very, very important. I believe school choice fixes most of the issues that we're screaming about as it relates to kids in our culture. It fixes Uh, what is taught about critical race theory and um, gender ideology and some of these other issues that we're talking about all the time. Uh, It it fixes the type of people and the educational background of those teachers that are now teaching, educating uh, children. It it fixes some of the sideways cultural agendas of school administrators to our kids. It, It fixes, in many ways, the institutionalization of children coming through a public education system. Why? Because there is competition, there is choice, there is the ability for parents to decide how they want their kids educated and in what place they want them educated, what they want them to learn, where they see them when they graduate from school. These are all such such important issues. But what I love about this article is that the author makes such a great point. Not only is this beneficial for parents, not only is this beneficial for students, and it is for both it is of great benefit to teachers as well. As he points out in this article, 79% of teachers, both Republican and Democrat, oppose school vouchers. There is a lot of fear tied to that. But why are 79% opposed to it? Because they think it's going to hurt them instead of enable them to go to a school of like mind, with like values, and educate children uh, really in a way that aligns to who they are as a person and as a teacher. This perspective needs to be shared more broadly, needs to be uh, certainly a big part of the discussion around school choice and school vouchers, and I hope that it will be. (laughs) When we look at our roles as parents, I think about my role as a parent. So many things I need to do in my house, with my family, um, in the roles that I fulfill, so many things. But at the very top, right near the top, the top two or three, is educating my kids. Not so that they can fit perfectly within the culture around them, but so that they have the skills, the tools, the abilities, the education to go into the world when I'm no longer around, when they're outside of the system, and not only function, but experience success because they've been given the right tools. That's my job. School choice goes a long way to do that, but not only does it allow me to do my job and allow my kids to get the education they need, it gives teachers the freedom to teach. Um, The teaching profession in the United States is one that has always, and rightfully so, been lifted up, been held in high esteem, uh, been valued. Teachers were people that were looked to as Uh, someone we could go to for answers. 
many young people growing up having a desire to be teachers. And now in the United States, we have a teacher shortage. A lot of reasons for that. One of the big reasons for that is fewer and fewer people want to find themselves in a system where they must align and must teach and must go along with so many things with which they disagree. And this goes a long way to fix that. Appreciate this article. I hope that you will check it out. Uh, So much great conversation here around education and just how important that is. I appreciate you joining the show today, of course. If you are not yet subscribed to the podcast, please take some time to do that right now. We will do our best every single episode to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. I don't just say that. I mean it. (laughs) Why would I pick an article and have a conversation about school choice? Because you need information and you need perspectives to navigate an ever-changing culture. Why does 79% of teachers, both Republican and Democrat, uh, push back, reject the idea of school choice? Because they don't have the right perspectives. And I don't think they have the right information. And we want to help them have both, but we want to help you have both. And uh, I hope that you will continue to listen. You are subscribed. You'll share then the content out with others. And uh, that would be fantastic. When you get a second, go over to YouTube. You can find our YouTube channel there as well, The Situation Report. Find us on YouTube. I'm sure you know how to get there. Take some time then to search for The Situation Report. You'll find us. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notification bell. Leave us a comment. And uh, we'd love to connect with you there. Again, thank you so much for watching and or listening. We will talk to you next time. Many of you know that my day job is working for an organization called the Mighty Oaks Foundation. I've had the opportunity to work with the Mighty Oaks Foundation for a little over 10 years now and very grateful for that opportunity. I served in the United States Marine Corps and left in 2003. When I came back from Iraq and got out of the Marine Corps, I transitioned and had some of the same struggles that many of our veterans today have. Uh, That transition time can be very, very difficult. I moved on with the help and support of my family and others in my close-knit community and really, in many ways, tried to walk away from my service. It was too hard, too difficult for me to look back, to remember, to stay connected, and so I chose not to. About 10 years after I walked away, I was reconnected with many of the men that I had served with in Iraq and even before that Iraq deployment and came to understand that so many of the men that I served with did not do well. I came home and I struggled, but I had a family around me and I had a community around me that helped me to get back on my feet and continue moving forward. So many of those that I had served with, however, did not have the same opportunity. They came home and didn't have that family around them, that community that could lift them up. And so they made some decisions, decisions that we talk about often in the veteran community. I was reminded about 10 years after my service that some of the men that I served with in Iraq came home and struggled and decided that it would be best for them to end their lives. Others who had not taken their lives, but who had struggled from one relationship to the next, from one job to another, and had never really gotten back on their feet. I learned after 10 years that walking away from my military service was not really an option. (laughs) 
You see, we think we can hang our uniform in the closet for the last time and walk away, but our obligation to those that we serve with remains. It was at that time that I had the opportunity to get connected to the Mighty Oaks Foundation. It was just getting started. I met our founder, Chad Robichaux, and together we began to work on what is today a national nonprofit serving veterans, active duty service members, and more and more the first responders in our community. That's what we do. You see, Chad served in the Marine Corps as well, and both of us have an understanding, and so many of the folks, many, many folks that work with us now who served in the military and in the first responder community understand that we may get out, we may hang the uniform up, but we still have an obligation to care for those who have served or are serving. That's exactly what we do at the Mighty Oaks Foundation every single day. We run programs across the country for those who have served, veterans, or are serving, active duty service members, those who are serving in their community as first responders, police officers and firefighters, and others in that first responder community. We serve them by helping them to understand that there is life beyond their service, that their identity should be wrapped up in more than a uniform or a job that they've done or are doing, that there is a purpose, that there is a plan. In fact, that God, the creator, has something he intends for them. And that if they'll simply align their lives to the life that he has for them, so much of the trauma, so much of the difficulty, so much of their past, so many of those things that have a hold on them, they may not go away, but they won't maintain the hold and the control. Here's the message we try to convey and communicate. There is hope. And there is a community of people found within the Mighty Oaks Foundation that understand where you've been because we've been there. We don't have it all figured out. We're certainly not perfect, but we've taken some steps to move forward and we want to take you with us. That's what we do. How do we do that? Again, by communicating the fact that there is hope, by connecting with others who've been there and know how to move forward and by getting around you and supporting you as you begin to take those very important steps yourself. The Mighty Oaks Foundation is blessed to have supporters across the country that make it possible for us to do the work that we do at no cost to the veteran, the active duty service member, or the first responder. For you to attend our program, you simply need to set aside five days and come to one of our locations, one of our facilities. We'll do the rest. There will be no cost to you for the program, no cost for the transportation to get you to the program. We do all the planning and all the logistics. You simply need to get there. We want to remove every obstacle for you to get the help, the encouragement, the strengthening, (laughs) the hope, the renewal that you need. We're thankful for the opportunity to do that. Perhaps you are not a veteran or a service member. You're not in the first responder community, but you care about those who have served and are serving our communities. Well, you may fall into the other category then. Perhaps you're someone that can support what we do financially to make it possible for those folks to come along. Maybe your support is not financial support, but you know someone in your community, in your town, in your church, uh, in a club, or something else that you're a part of that could use this kind of support and encouragement. Plug them in. Let us help them. Let us get them on the road. No cost to them. We want to do the work, but we need you to get them to us. That was a lot of words. If you listen to the show, you know I say a lot of words sometimes. So let me point you to the one place where you can get all of your questions answered. MightyOaksPrograms.org is our website. MightyOaksPrograms.org. There you will find more information about what we do as an organization. There's an application for those who would like to apply 
Fill that out, application out. Our team will get back to you, set everything else up. If you would like to support the work of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, you'll find a place to do that there as well. And there is also a section for resources. So many of you know people who need help but may not start by coming to a program, attending a program, but they would read a book, they would watch a video, they would listen to a testimony. We have those resources there for you as well. So please come and join us at the Mighty Oaks Foundation's website, mightyoaksprograms.org. Our veterans, active duty members, and first responders need our support. Maybe you're in that category. You need our support. And that begins by going to the Mighty Oaks Program's website, mightyoaksprograms.org.